Welcome to Historias, the Spanish history podcast. I'm your host, Breton Rodriguez, and I'm speaking with Max Deardorff about the development of the Spanish Empire in the Americas in the 16th century. So Max is an assistant professor at the University of Florida and a former postdoctoral fellow at the Max Planck Institute for European Legal History in Germany. He is a historian of colonial Latin America and early modern Iberia, especially interested in religious and ethnic minorities, identity construction, and the legal and normative framework of the early modern world. His book manuscript, Mestizos, Indios Latinos, and Arabic Christians, Categories of Difference and Christian Citizenship in the Spanish Empire, examines the relationship between emergent early modern categories of race expressed through the notion of blood purity or limpieza de sangre in Spanish, and conceptions of citizenship in the 16th and 17th century Spanish empire, focusing on new subjects, or new imperial subjects, seeking enfranchisement in the frontier towns and cities of the far-flung Spanish monarchy. Max is a former uh, Fulbright scholar and has also received funding from the Nanovec and Kellogg Institutes. He received his PhD from the University of Notre Dame in history in 2015. So greetings, Max. Thanks for having me on, Brett. Pleasure to have you. So I thought what we could do is start kind of speaking generally and think of thinking about your work generally and then moving more towards the specific. So the first question I have for you then, in general terms, how was the Spanish empire organized in the 16th century? And how are different component parts of the empire treated and structured? I know this is a huge question. So kind of just thinking really in broad strokes in general terms, how, how is the empire really situated or organized in this time? Just recently, I was able to uh, uh, attend an event fetting John Elliott, who played a really important role in the history community and kind of hammering home the point. Early modern Spain was a composite monarchy. This is a, um, this is a set of territories with one common monarch, but uh, kingdoms composed of kingdoms with uh, different traditions, different bodies of law. And uh, so when we think about Spain or the Spanish Empire in the 16th century, it really comprises um, the Kingdom of Castile, the Kingdom of Aragon, um, all of their uh, kind of uh, appended territories, uh, the Kingdom of Navarre in Spain, uh, Italian territories in Sardinia, Sicily, so on and so forth. And then important for any Latin Americanist, all of the former kingdoms, uh, pre-Hispanic kingdoms, the Incas, the Aztecs, so on and so forth. So this is a political system where there's a king at the top and uh, all the people of uh, his many kingdoms owe, as vassals owe him fealty. Um, and he in return owes them good government. But really what mattered most to most people in terms of everyday life is their relationship to their municipality. So by municipality, so you kind of, you're, you're saying kind of these local relationships, these local governments are more important than these larger these larger structures, or can you expand on that a little bit? Uh, the, the many kingdoms of the monarch are in themselves kind of a republic. And I, and I, don't, I don't know, I might be getting ahead of myself here, <laughs> um, uh, but uh, each one of them also uh, comprises its own separate republic. So uh, there's a, a kind of a great historian of um, Latin America, Alejandro Aguero, who uh, uses a term, a, a, a phrase that I really liked. He calls um, the Spanish monarchy a republic of republics, huh. which is to say um, people belong at the local level to their city, which is a, uh, a common wheel where um, people are mutually invested in uh, living together in a space. 
And so the city of Tenochtitlan, Mexico City, the city of Lima, the city of Madrid, uh, the city of Sevilla, the city of Barcelona, these are each in themselves a republic, um, but all together, each one of these republics um, come together to form a republic of the republics that is that are the composite monarchy of the Spanish Habsburg monarch. Interesting. So I, I do want to come back to this idea of republics in a moment, um, but I do. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how the, these local republics form these larger kingdoms. And then also, I did want to ask you within within this kind of composite monarchy, as you put it, which is a great term, um, which I'm going to steal whenever I talk about the Spanish Empire in the future. I was wondering if you talk a little bit in particular about the kingdom of New Granada, which I know you focus a lot of your work on. And then also, if we're going to talk about New Granada, maybe talking about the original kingdom of Granada as well. So kind of first looking at what we mean, this relationship between republic and kingdom, and then looking at these two kingdoms in particular. The monarchy, I suppose, recognizes uh, Granada in the south of Spain uh, as its own unique kingdom. It's, you know, an emirate or a sultanate up until kind of 1482 when that the frontier warfare starts again and Ferdinand and Isabel eventually kind of by the end of 1491, the beginning of 1492, conquer Granada. Um, Boabdil turns over the keys and it, this kingdom of Granada gets incorporated into the kingdoms of Castile. And so, it, you know, this is a territorial space that includes the city of Granada, but also many other uh, smaller towns and some other cities and, you know, uh, and their surrounding kind of rural areas. In the Spanish monarchy, the, the concept of republic, um, you know, which they've kind of picked up from Plato and Aristotle, which everybody when they go to college is reading um, back in these days, it, it is almost a synonym for city, right? Uh, a city is a republic, a republic is a city. <clears throat> but there's also kind of this growing conception that republics can uh, refer to not only um, not only cities, but other voluntary organizations of people, uh, which might be conceptualized as far as, um, you know, the Republic of the Christians or, and this is a new thing that's happening in the 16th century, I think, is people thinking in terms of um, the Republic of Spain, this geographical expression, Spain, the Roman Hispania, because it's ruled by one monarch, people are starting to talk about it as uh, a self-supporting commune. Mm -hmm. So that's Republic. Granada and the New Kingdom of Granada. I've spent many hours of my life with these two places. Uh, maybe all of your listeners are not uh, quite as familiar um, as I am, but Granada is in southern Spain. It becomes part of uh, the kingdoms of the Spanish monarch after 1492, um, after kind of a long period of coexistence where it exists as kind of like a, a vassal state of Castile in the medieval period, which is probably more your specialty than mine. Uh, but then the new kingdom of Granada is a territory in the Americas that is roughly, uh, roughly within the boundaries of modern day Colombia. Uh, and uh, enters the kingdoms of Spain in 1537 when uh, uh, a band of adventurers fight their way up the Magdalena River and proclaim victory over some native groups. They go back to report um, to Madrid and uh, to get uh, at least the claim to uh, rulership over the area made in the Spanish courts. 
you might ask, why does this place and what we now know as Colombia get labeled New Kingdom of Granada? Uh, you know, why not call it New Seville or New Madrid or you know New Catalonia? It turns out that kind of the lead adventurer, the adelantado um, Gonzalo Jimenez de Quesada, uh, was from Granada. Uh, he was actually a lawyer uh, there. And um, before he took off for a life of, of adventure uh, in the New World, uh, he had worked in the um, Royal Chancery in Granada. And when he he led his troops up to the highlands and um, conquered some Huisca people, uh, he said, this geographical area reminds me of the hills and the mountains of um, uh, my homeland of Granada. So we will call this the new kingdom of Granada. I'm also, I'm also interested a little bit in some of these other connections between some of these ideas and concepts to develop in medieval Iberia. Um, and also the way that these get brought over to the new world, in particular to New Granada in particular. Um, so I mean, one of the big issues in the old kingdom of Granada, which I don't think anyone calls it that, but I just did, that's fine. Um, one of the big issues there obviously is looking at these intersections between religions, particularly after the conquest of the city in 1492, looking at those, basically those individuals who converted to Christianity, right? So looking at Moriscos. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the way that both this relationship between Christians and Moriscos, um, and also going back into, I mean, going back to what I like to talk about in medieval Iberia, um, going back a little bit at this idea of convivencia as well. So this, this living together, this, these interactions between Christians, Muslims, and Jews as well, the way this is changing as we go into the 15th century or into the 16th century, um, and looking at the way that these relationships, these, these ways of structuring society, get really brought over and transplanted into the new world, into New Granada um, in particular. The so-called Morisco question is, is one that has kind of fascinated a lot of scholars and there's been a lot of ink spilled over the question of this kingdom of Granada, kind of the last independent Islamic kingdom uh, in the Spanish peninsula, which, you know, when it's, it's conquered in 1492, it kind of spells the end of a very long, you know, seven, almost 800 year period in which um, uh, this territory had had Islamic rulers and Islamic societies. And abruptly, it feels, uh, it feels kind of shockingly abrupt that for centuries, Christians and Muslims and Jews had lived in this territory and some had ruled over others. Um, there, there had been convivial relationships, there had been violent relationships, but these people had coexisted. Um, but somehow between 1492 and a little more than 100 years later, by 1614, practically all of um, the natives of this kingdom of Granada had first been forced to convert from Islam to Christianity which is a shock, but kind of made sense in this world, but then had been, even after they converted, had been expelled from their homelands, which really um, was traumatic and it was hard to make sense of in some ways. This, uh, it's attracted a lot of scholars over time because uh, it really illustrates kind of a major change that's um, happening in Europe, happening in Spain, this kind of confessionalization, this um, intense push towards orthodoxy within um, the different 
Christian confessions in Europe, especially, uh, you know, within Catholicism, uh, within Spain. Uh, and so really understanding how uh, this society so quickly turned away from di diversity and towards what from the outside looks like kind of an intense xenophobia has mm. really kind of attracted a lot of attention and, and kind of begged for explanation. In my book, I, I, I make the case that um, how this process develops in Spain between Christians and uh, the converts from Islam in Granada offers us clues for understanding processes that are happening in Latin America between Spanish Christians and uh, natives of the Americas who, you know, in the 16th century may or may not be Christians. They certainly weren't before the Spaniards got there. Um, many of them eventually, the great majority of them eventually do become Christians, but in a process that takes decades um, and even centuries. One follow-up question I would have is one thing that you talk about in, in your book is you look at what's happening in Granada is this, this interpretive key for what happens in New Granada, um, particularly as you're looking at these relations between Christians and Moriscos, and then looking at what happens between the relationship between, between the Spaniards and the indigenous population in New Granada. So I mean, maybe just looking, if you could expand a little bit on that and looking at the way that we can use what's happening in, in old Granada, again, to use that, that awful phrase, um, as a way of, of understanding what's happening in the Americas, or as a way of understanding what's happening in, in the new kingdom of Granada. So let's, let's start there. I do have a follow-up question that has to do with, with republics as well, but maybe we can start looking at the way that, looking at it as a means of interpretation, as a means of mapping one set of, of kind of the way that relationships are set up onto this new, this new context, into this new setting. Understanding how the Americas, which was home to a, a panoply of religions and, uh, as of 1491, how it became such a, a you know, uh, a powerfully Catholic place over the, the kind of the colonial period has, has been a fascinating one. And, um, you know, very early on, almost a hundred years ago now, uh, the French scholar Robert Ricard uh, called um, the process uh, of Christianization in the Americas, the spiritual conquest, the spiritual conquest that followed the military one. Scholars have been very much trying to, uh, at the very least, nuance um, that view of, uh, of things, but there really has been a question, like how, how were these people who were not Catholics um, encouraged uh, enticed or maybe coerced into becoming Catholics? And what did that mean for the relationship between natives and Spaniards in this kind of uh, post-conquest cosmopolitan world that develops? And kind of for a relatively long period in um, Latin American historiography, the kind of the, the view that we had was one of coercion and resistance. More recently, scholars have started looking for in native communities, those who were motivated for their own reasons to become Christians, who, who maybe did so out of sincere interest or maybe um, uh, for instrumental reasons because uh, you know, becoming Catholic would fulfill some other want that they, um, they had. And there's been kind of a pretty significant amount of writing in the last decade or two about 
Indios Ladinos, about acculturated or Christianized Indians who, um, it turns out, are kind of act, very active players in the, um, in the colonial world, uh, both um, accomplices to Spaniards and turns out members of bureaucracies. And this kind of new interest in um, Indios Ladinos uh, is kind of overlapped with another interest in um, urban Indians. Uh, that is to say, natives who um, left their natal populations to immigrate into new Spanish cities that were being founded. And one of the questions is, are they, when they immigrate into the Spanish city, are they, uh, is there always a prejudice against them? Are they um, always subordinate uh, underclass? Um, and there's kind of been a lot of work recently that shows that um, they are socially mobile, um, that they're living lives that are both plugged in to um, their native families um, outside the Spanish city and they're building new lives, new complicated lives in Spanish city. And one of the things that my research in the old kingdom of Granada, as you say, <laughs> has shown me is that there is a point in time, the 1560s, the 1570s, the 1580s, when uh, there's a real, the Catholic world uh, of the Spanish monarch is becoming much more diverse. The world of Catholics used to be Spaniards. And now there are Native American Catholics. There are um, descendants of Muslims who are Catholics. There, are, As everybody knows, there are many descendants of Jews who are now Catholics. Their descendants of Africans who are Catholics. Um, and so uh, when people attend their parish churches, it they, they look different. So visually, these are much different places than they were even 50 years before. And there's a lot of social anxiety about, you know, who is a real Catholic and who has just, who just bears the name of Catholic for some instrumental reasons. And in the 1560s, um, there is a real push from, from the church and from the point of view of the monarchy to define what a good Catholic is in ways that are very much um, linked to cultural Castilianization. The wearing of Spanish Castilian uh, styles of dress, uh, speaking uh, Spanish language, performing the cultural forms of Catholicism that might not necessarily be the the theological forms going, um, going through the rites, these all become very important in the 1560s. And the push from the monarchy in old Granada, uh, emphasizing the importance of these uh, cultural forms leads to a lot of intense anger and a civil war. In the Americas, in the new kingdom of Granada, there, there is a push for Castilianization that leads to squabbles, uh, kind of intense confrontations, but there's, all across the monarchy, I think, and certainly in Old and New Granada, there's a real battle about what it means to be Catholic. And is it being descended from a long line of Catholics or is it doing these quote unquote Catholic things that involve, you know, speaking Spanish? No, that, that's great. And that, that leads me to another major topic I wanted to bring up and that's, that's looking at ethnicity and the way that we think about ethnicity, the way we think about race, um, and also this ties so neatly into religion as well. 
I mean, I know we see this in 15th century Castile as well, the question of the conversos, so kind of converts from Judaism to Christianity, and the question of whether or not they are good Christians or not is what leads to the Inquisition, right? This is what leads to, uh, we begin to see kind of Castile grappling with these issues. Um, I'm just wondering if you could expand a little bit about what's really looking at the significance of ethnicity in an early modern Spanish context. Um, so you talk about the Moriscos. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that and also looking at the way that you mentioned this rebellion in, in Granada and the way that, way that we see Moriscos being treated after this rebellion. If we could see that, that same type of treatment happening in the New World and the Americas as well. Um, so yeah, just to take a step back, just thinking a little bit about race and ethnicity and the way that we see these tensions really forcing Spain to really grapple these issues and what they, what they mean and what they think about when they, when they use these terms. Um, for myself, I'm particularly interested in whether or not one can be a good Christian if they're not Spanish, if they are African or if they are you know, indigenous to the new world. If, is it possible if you speak Spanish perfectly, if you dress in Castilian garb, are you able to assimilate in this way? Or are there other, other you know, barriers that you're not able to cross, no matter how much you might try to assimilate? You know, that's, oh, that's one of the guiding questions that I entered this research with. There are a number of scholars who've pointed out that this is kind of a transitional time, that in medieval Spain, you know, biological race, um, uh, as we kind of employ it in our modern day lives, um, doesn't uh, exist so much. Um, there certainly is a sense of ethnic difference, but really kind of the most, the most important dividing lines in this society are religious. This uh, is a territory where um, Christians, Muslims, and Jews are used to being neighbors, uh, sometimes getting along and very often not. Um, but knowing that, you know, I belong to my group and these other people belong to their group. And there are many unwritten and many and other written laws that say that, you know, they're, uh, that kind of prohibit uh, relationships across those religious lines. So under Ferdinand and Isabel and uh subsequent monarchs in Spain, um, the, these religious minorities are essentially given the choice to convert to Christianity or leave. Uh, so by 1526, uh, this kind of religiously diverse area has now become uh, Christian. It's all Christian. The former Jews and the former Muslims who've converted um, and their children and grandchildren um, who are, are now Catholics, uh, still very often feel a sense of difference. Uh, and a number of people who have started calling themselves old Christians um, certainly know that they're different than these new people who've uh, recently become Christians. And so Spaniards start developing um, new linguistic terms to refer to people who are technically part of our religious group, but who really, we don't, we feel like they're, they're different or they don't belong. Um, and so we get these terms like conversos, moriscos, and they take this kind of mental framework to the Americas. Um, and Spaniards who go to the Americas who are mostly old Christians, some of them are, are newly converted. They meet people in the Americas, they push them to convert, um, they invite them to convert, sometimes they coerce them to convert. Uh, and when they do convert, they are all new Christians. And there's kind of jurisprudence in canon law that says being a new Christian recently converted 
for a period of time, which is unspecified in canon law, uh, but there's some jurisprudence around it. It might be anywhere between months and 10 years. They should have limited enfranchisement within society. Well, old Christian Spaniards really pushed the envelope and, uh, and tried to and try to push that kind of disenfranchisement of new Christians even further. And it's because these Spaniards who have conquered the terror, Mexica ter territories, Aztec territories, who've conquered the territories of the Incas and have made them into territories of their king, uh, can't fathom being equal or equivalent uh, to these people who speak a different language, who have a different physique, who have intensely different values. And so we enter a phase in Spanish history where being Catholic, being new Christian, old Christian just isn't enough to explain the differences. And so what we get is a lot of writing from thinkers, Spanish thinkers, Spanish Christian thinkers from this period, who talk about this new big world that they're part of and all the republics of people who form part of it. And what are these republics? A republic, again, is a group of people who are, uh, who've intentionally joined uh, a commonweal. And um, when they use it to talk about ethnicity, the, this republic that they refer to suggests that they have a distinct language of their own, um, perhaps a set of uh, religious beliefs that are non-Catholic of their own, um, a, a set of customs um, uh, of their own. You, you talk about in your work about these Republic of, this Republic of the Indians and this Republic of the Spaniards, and you've already talked about how these republics are often associated with municipalities, with localities, with towns and cities. And so here it seems like we have another structure almost on top of that other structure. So I was wondering, if you could talk a little bit about the way that these ideas about race and ethnicity are also influencing really the, the structure of these communities, the structures of, of these kingdoms within these areas as well. So looking at ethnicity almost becoming a guiding, a guiding rule with the way that actually the, the political structure is put into place in places like the New Kingdom of Granada. So I have to admit as, a, uh, as kind of an undergraduate student and an, um, an early graduate student, this term, the Republic of the Indians that you just alluded to was one that caused a certain bit of confusion for me. It's really been a lot of fun un unearthing the term slowly but surely and learning to think in its framework. And so the Republic of the Indians is a term that's created by philosophers and architects of empire uh, in kind of the mid 16th century, who are start trying to, to figure out how to employ the law that they have to govern an empire. And they're coming from a tradition that even though it's hierarchical and that it sees a single monarch, usually a king at the top guiding society, is in many ways intensely federalist. Um, there's this assumption that people belong to communities, republics um, that uh, know best how to provide for themselves and uh, who should, in the exception of some great extenuating circumstances, should be self-governing uh, according to a set of customs that best serves the interests, uh, local interests and needs. 
um, as long as, as those local customs don't violate central tenets of Catholicism, um, this is in many ways uh, a, a decentralized society um, that's very tolerant of local particularities. And so when the Spaniards get to Americas and shock themselves and the whole rest of the world by having some military successes that somehow end up with them collecting tribute on a different continent, they are very proud of their legal system and um, anxious to implant it in this new place where um, they're living and making a new life. And there are some among them who uh, would love to just uh, bring the set of uh, legal statutes that they use in their hometown or in their uh, region and just apply those where they are. But there are many more um, minds who say, you know, you try to do that, it'll throw the society into disarray. Mm. Um, and so these thinkers of the period design this concept of the Republic of the Indians, which is abstract. Uh, I remember being a student being confused and thought that it applied to a concrete set of people that are territorially delimited. And it's not, it's, it's like a, it's a pathway for thinking is, is that Indians, natives of the Indies are different people with different traditions than Spaniards. And once they pledge fealty to the same King, they should have the right to live according to those traditions as long as they don't violate the central tenets of Catholicism. And so we get this uh, legal design for the Americas of a Republic of the Indians and a Republic of the Spaniards. And the assumption is Spaniards should be ruled by the same laws that they had back home, but natives, their laws should be unmolested, except with the exception of the kind of the Catholic clause, right? One of the things that I spend a lot of time looking at in my book is there are these abstract ideas about essentially segregated communities, right? Assuming this all works, you know, Spaniards just keep living according to your Spanish customs and natives just um, keep living according to your native customs. And as long as nobody moves, that system works okay. But when, you know, Spaniards try to settle amongst native communities and when um, natives come and set up households in Spanish communities, then what do we do? Is a native person living in, you know, one of these um, Spanish founded cities, Lima, for example, do they live according to the laws of the Republic of the Indians? Do they, do, are they respondent to the laws of whatever town they uprooted themselves from to go settle in Lima? Or now that they live in Lima, a Spanish city, do they have to live by the laws of the Republic of the Spaniards? And so, it's been really interesting. I've spent a lot of time in my book looking at the case of urban Indians. Uh, we know from a kind of a long line of historiography, there are a lot of natives who were dragged kicking and screaming from their native communities under kind of very unequal situations into the Spanish city um, to serve, often coerced. But there are still others who choose to go live in the Spanish city. And my book looks at their case and um, how uh, Spanish, the Republic of the Spaniards countenances them, whether, whether it decides to integrate them or to, to leave them in some kind of legal limbo. Um, and uh, what I found is that 
people working on other parts of the Spanish empire suggest that these people, uh, these urban Indians get caught in a sort of legal limbo. But for the new kingdom of Granada, there are a significant number of um, Huisca peoples of uh, the highlands of what we now know as Colombia, who choose to join the Spanish city and become enfranchised according to uh, the logic of the Spanish city. In essence, you're arguing that they're able to move from the Republic of the Indians in a way into the Republic of the Spaniards by moving into this urban space and moving into, I guess, kind of this, this Spanish space in a sense. And yes, it implies a certain sacrifice. Making that move, they sacrifice in many ways, they're kind of a lot of the protections built into the system that's that kind of that system of ideal segregation um, but they you know they gain new kind of uh liberties um liberties and franquesas <laughs> it's interesting because i mean this this discussion goes against what i think is the the viewpoint of a lot of people thinking about the spanish empire as it being really homogenous right spain comes in and imposes its laws its rules and this is what this is what it becomes right you speak spanish you you join the Catholic Church, but you have to kind of fit this mold, right? And what, what you're laying out is a society that's a lot more distinct, a lot more different. Even if it is segregated, you see these different cultures and identities surviving and thriving in different areas. It's only in certain spaces where we see the, the indigenous populations being kind of assimilated or kind of forced to fit into this new, this new way of doing things. Would you say that's correct or a gross oversimplification or, or what do you think? Yeah, and that's something that, you know, uh, over the course of my graduate career and then writing this book, uh, that's kind of a realization that I came to is, is that um, there, um, there was a whole lot more di diversity and tolerance in this system mm -hmm. than I expected. Um, I, but once I become familiar enough with the system to expect that, I, I got surprised a second time when I saw people kind of um, community jumping because I, I, the kind of the first lesson that I learned was that there was a segregated diversity. And after becoming familiar with that, um, seeing this integrated diversity, mm. if you will, um, was kind of a shock. That's interesting. Um, could you talk a little bit about the role of Catholicism in this as well? I know in your work, you talk about the Council of Trent and you start seeing more priests who are speaking indigenous languages. You see folks from the indigenous communities becoming priests as well. Does this also play a role in the development of this more integrated community, this more integrated diversity, as you put it? Or what's the role of Catholicism in kind of really overcoming some of these barriers or boundaries? One of the uh, kind of great insights that I think I had by conducting a study that looked at uh, both old and new Granada together instead of um, just one of them in isolation is that well, in the case of um, Old Granada, King Philip II um, uh, becomes monarch in 1556, right in the middle of this Council of Trent, this kind of great reform of Catholicism, kind of trying to answer the Protestant Reformation that takes place in a, a, a set of three kind of very long extended meetings between 1545 and 1563. Uh, and he seems to be very committed to kind of strengthening uh, his monarch the, his his monarchy's uh, relationship to a kind of a, a very orthodox uh, conception of Catholicism in order to avoid uh, 
all of the conflict that he sees happening all throughout Europe. And so he is uh, a very avid proponent of the reform movement um, within Catholicism happening at the Ecumenical Council of Trent. And as soon as that um, Council of Trent that, you know, meets over, the, over um, a period of 18 years, 25 different sessions, kind of hammers out a lot of theological points and some more kind of practical administrative measures. Um, as soon as that council gets finalized, he says, uh, the, 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 you know, the way the church works is that um, the major reforms are agreed upon up high and then they have to be implemented um, uh, uh, kind of down the scale. And he says, I want to implement these reforms in all of my territories. Mm -hmm. And so he essentially orchestrates um, uh, in concert with the bishops and archbishops of his territories, uh, a wave of ecclesiastical uh, synods and councils that um, make the Council of Trent the law of the land. There's a big push after the Council of Trent to kind of um, strengthen the relationship between priest and parishioner, um, to, uh, to kind of uh, make sure what basic, basic knowledge of the faith that every, um, uh, every Christian should have. And what happens is that all throughout um, the kingdoms of the monarch, we get an, 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 an intensification of interest in parish level Catholic education, mm. a greater investment in the number of priests who are available uh, to any community, and an insistence that every subject of the crown who um, is at this point kind of nominally Catholic needs to be attending mass. Um, and in many places, um, children are required to the age of 14 or 16 to attend um, doctrine classes at least once a week. And so there's a big push behind Catholic education and an insistence that all the minority peoples who've recently been um, kind of folded into the Catholic society should be acting like Catholics, gosh darn it. <laughs> what happens in Granada is that uh, this push for reform gets really targeted at the natives, uh, uh, descendants of the Muslims who, um, uh, who had inhabited this land forever and ever, uh, who many of whom are first language Arabic speakers, um, many of whom dress differently than their old Christian neighbors. And there's a push from the monarchy um, cooperating with the ecclesiastical establishment to make them speak Castilian, to make them uh, wear Christian clothes, um, uh, to make them kind of celebrate their marriages in the Christian way and not with these funny Islamic traditions. The native people of Granada see this as a kind of violence. Um, there's uh, this kind of antagonistic insistence on these issues and um, kind of policing that goes along with it, a series of fines. They see it as uh, aggressive and hostile. Uh, it drives them to rebellion. But this, the Council of Trent is implemented all across the kingdoms of Spain in different places, um, sometimes less aggressively than it is in Granada. Um, but there's a, a, a movement, you know, within Castile, within Aragon, within New Spain, you know, Mexico and its surrounding areas, within Peru, you know, 
even in the low countries, there's a real push to make Catholicism mean a very particular thing uh, and to, uh, to imply, you know, a, a set of practices that go along, uh, go beyond the kind of theological boundaries of Catholicism. And so I see um, the Council of Trent as having, uh, as, as being kind of a watershed moment in the politics of uh, the entire monarchy, changing conceptions uh, of what a good subject is, implying not only uh, demanding of a good subject, not only to be faithful to the crown, to, to, to serve the crown when called, um, but also to be a Catholic who speaks Spanish, uh, who, um, who, who dresses a certain way, who goes to mass, who confesses. Um, and so uh, uh, this kind of reworks the conception of citizenship at the local level um, because of this push from above. It was interesting reading through through your book and seeing what the work that you've done. And there's just so much, there's so much there, right? There's, there's so much that you're talking about um, and so much that you address. So I was wondering, I have a couple, I have one other question for you after this, but I was wondering if you, if you had to kind of sum up what you wanted the key takeaway for your book to be. Like what, what do you think would be the main, the main thing you'd want your readers, your audience to know coming out from reading it? Or what, what's maybe something to get people excited to read it when, it, when the book does come out as well? What would you want the, the key idea or the key, yeah, the key development? So what I thought I knew about this world when I was kind of in the early stages of this project is that Spaniards were proud of being Catholics um, and they were uh, intensely evangelical about it um, and also very xenophobic. And those things kind of continue to be true. But what I saw in conducting the research for this book is that in addition to those characteristics, in addition to those elements, um, this is also a society that is eager to assimilate the new peoples of its empire and is not as xenophobic or maybe racist as I thought it was. And uh, so what I found is that, especially after the Council of Trent, and it's, um, it's true in Granada, uh, where there are many descendants of Muslims and even some kind of crypto Muslims who live there, as much there as in the Americas, uh, um, that the monarchy and the church present this blueprint of what a good Catholic citizen looks like. And uh, they kind of push it uh, on their new uh, subjects. And it alienates a lot of people. But there are a number of people, both those who are sometimes referred to in the historiography as moriscos and um, those referred to as uh, Indians, um, uh, muiscas, uh, nawas, uh, Andeans, who look at this blueprint and say, I can do that. I'm interested in being this kind of citizen. Um, and these people achieve enfranchisement and something that I... I did not expect to see uh, in the New Kingdom of Granada when I started was that native people who left their hometowns and moved to the Spanish cities of Bogota, Santa Fe de Bogota or, or Tunja, um, and who kind of followed the patterns of this blueprint of uh, Christian citizenship that um, kind of uh, was being, were being perpetuated um, by their 
parish priests. They set up homesteads and became enfranchised, fully functioning members of the in-group in Spanish society. And, you know, we are told, um, we kind of learn in the study of Spanish history that between 1609 and 1614, um, all of the Moriscos, or the great, great majority of them are expelled um, and kind of leave Spain for good, leaving the land of their grandparents. But kind of what my research has shown and that of um, other people is that many of them assimilate and they've started assimilating by the 1560s. Some of them, by the time this expulsion rolls around are, are fully assimilated and a number of them managed to avoid expulsion. And this is something that we kind of intuited in prior decades, but now recent research is really making clear that many of them uh, stay in Spain past these expulsions that we thought um, had uh, separated them from Andalusia. And the key for understanding who's in and who's out, it's not so much about race. It's about um, performed Christianity, performed Catholicism in a particular Tridentine mold. Uh, and it's, um, it's predictable. And it's, I think it's predictable uh, moving between different spaces of the monarchy. Uh, and that's, um, I think that's the real insight. So I had one last question, and that's actually not about the book, but about your website, um, in which I do see that you brought all these resources together. Um, and I was just wondering what, yeah, I was just kind of wondering what motivated you to, to do this, and also what kind of where you see it going, where you see the audience, and kind of how you would like to, or what your goals are with the site in general. Uh, so I have a website, www.maxdeardorf.org. Check it out. <laughs> uh, which I, um, I initially set up a, as a, a PhD student finishing on the job market um, as a kind of a way to advertise myself. But um, after I kind of moved out of that phase, uh, I hung on to the website and transitioned it into kind of a, a warehouse for interesting and useful resources that I had found across the web and in the course of doing research for my book or um, you know, preparing for teaching. And so I, I collected a lot of resources on, on kind of um, links to uh, different bodies of law that were operative in the Spanish empire, kind of between the late medieval and um, the end of the early modern period. I've uh, linked out to a tremendous number of fascinating digital history projects that my colleagues across the country and really across the world have been developing um, on just a uh, it kind of anything relevant to um, the Iberian world um, between kind of the late medieval period and uh, kind of the independence period of the 19th century, I've, I've tried to incorporate there. Um, and one, so I like, I don't lose track of all these awesome resources uh, that, you know, if I ever have free time, I'd like to just take, take a look at for my own, um, for my own entertainment but also because I find them useful for teaching. Like a lot of people, this, uh, uh, like a lot of uh, university instructors this last semester, I, uh, I assume I had to scramble uh, and make a plan how to teach a, a class I'd taught before um, fully online. And one of the things, you know, I, uh, I was teaching a course on golden age Spain this semester um, that uh, was kind of a typical, two hours of lecture, one hour of discussion set up. 
And so it happens that at my university, uh, teaching was Tuesday, Thursday, and my Tuesday section was two hours of me lecturing. And I thought, my poor students, they're gonna, I'm gonna wear them out. Um, and so I, I, I tried to come up with things to kind of uh, break up. I don't want to use the word monotony, but um, to, to, to break up the rhythm of just uh, uh, my talking. So I had students, I built in an assignment to the syllabus to have students check out any one of the digital history websites that they found on, linked on my website um, and build a two to three minute advertisement on it. One, I thought, you know, just a way to get students exposed to neat stuff out there. I had um, kind of a, a covert second agenda, which is I, I want those students in our community who are, you know, who might be interested in doing research um, uh, to be exposed to primary sources that are out there, uh, especially those who might be interested in doing an honors thesis. Mm -hmm. Uh, I figured um, connecting them to primary sources through digital history websites early on couldn't hurt. I exposed my undergraduates to this, hoping to inspire them um, to, to dig deeper into history. And for grad students, and honestly, for my colleagues, um, there are, there's a, a lot of quick access to a lot of different archives with the digital holdings, libraries uh, throughout Spain and throughout the Americas that have um, digitalized sources. I think it's a great first place to stop and look around um, as you're studying a new research project because I've really managed to link out um, to a lot of um, interesting uh, work done by institutions um, who are interested in the same things that I. That sounds great. And I've seen the website. It's great. Everyone should check it out. Um, if you're interested in early modern or medieval Spain, you'll find lots of really great stuff there. There are archives, history projects. It's a great place to go. A great thing to see. All right. So unfortunately, we are we are out of time. So Max, thank you for your time. Um, I appreciate it. And um, thank you so much for this opportunity. I, um, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historians. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes. <laughs>